0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We're going to continue our series on apologetics. This is the defense of the Christian faith. And I realize that this is a very informational series. So for a lot of you, this is right there in your wheelhouse. And for others, you can't wait for this to be over with. Uh, But you only have about one more week. I hope you're enjoying it. But it's coming out of uh, 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness uh, and respect. So I just wanted to show you this uh, very quickly. That word answer uh, is the Greek word apologia. Uh, That's why it's called apologetics. It's the word apologia. It literally means a verbal defense. So when Peter says to give reasons for your faith, he's not saying apologize for your faith. He says, be always prepared to verbally defend your faith. So that's what this series is all about, is strengthening our ability to to verbally defend our faith. uh, And also, as I've said each week, empowering us to more confidently share our faith. So uh, be... Because our faith, um, I I want us to see that our faith is not one where we are relegated just to saying, well, the Bible says so, so let's leave it at that. But we actually have uh, incredibly strong empirical evidence for our faith, the basis of our faith. So we've gone through this point, uh, historical evidence for our faith. And last week we looked at scientific evidence for our faith. And I'm going to put this on the screen again. We did it last week, but my goal is by the end of this series you'll have this memorized because I'm telling you this is a weapon, a tool at our disposal, disposal that we have for sharing our faith. So the first is those five historical facts that even the most celebrated of atheists agree with, and that's that Jesus was a true historical figure. He was in fact crucified. The tomb was found empty the disciples at the very least believed that they encountered a risen Jesus and Jesus was worshipped as God from a very short time following his crucifixion. Historically, uh, we can verify these facts. This is true. Even scholarly atheists do not disagree with these facts. Uh, What it comes down to is how to best explain these five facts. To me, the simplest explanation is God raised Jesus from the dead Uh, To the atheist, they have to come up with uh, explanations that require more faith uh, than I have. So uh, that was the historical evidence. And then in terms of science, last week we looked at the evidence for intelligent design. So this can be boiled down to two points if you want to make notes. If you're making an argument on the basis of science uh, for intelligent design, remember we want to start with common ground. So we would start with this accepted statement. Uh, Evidence points to an eternal uncreated agent at the beginning of creation or the cosmos. So even scientists and cosmologists acknowledge this, uh, that there must be something at the very beginning, even before the Big Bang, uh, there had to be something before it. The reason that they have acknowledged this is because for thousands of years, they believed that that eternal agent was the universe itself. They believed that the universe was the eternal agent that brought everything else forth, You and I get to live in the days where that belief in the eternal universe has now been disproved. Uh, And it was 2003 that it was ultimately established that the universe, for various reasons that they discovered, uh, has a beginning. They know the universe had a beginning. It's not the eternal, timeless agent that they thought it was. Therefore, there is another eternal entity prior to the universe. We know that to be God. Atheists don't have the answer. And then secondly, the accepted scientific truth is the odds of the universe being naturally life-sustaining are, pardon the pun, astronomical. Uh, We looked at this on the basis of just uh, several forces holding our universe together, gravitational force, electromagnetic and nuclear force. If we look at the the parameters that these forces are capable of and then the parameters that they have to be for us to exist uh, apart from the supernatural... It's impossible. In fact, the odds, as we went through last week, are 1 in 10 to the 135th power. And if you need to see uh, a bigger number, uh, that it's that number. That are, that's the odds of our universe naturally being what it is today where we can exist. Uh, so the way that an atheist or a scientist would explain this is they say, well, there must be that many universes and we're in the lucky one. Uh, the way I would explain it is there's an intelligent designer who created it all. It's just simpler to me to, to, to believe that. Again, I don't have the faith that some of these scientists do. So with all of that being said, today we're moving on to the next area of our faith that comes under attack, and that is the Bible itself. Uh, this usually sounds like, do you really believe in the Bible? Uh, or the Bible is full of contradictions. It's outdated. It's irrelevant. It's full of errors. It's full of fairy tales. It's, it's, it's this and that fill in the blank. Today we're looking at the reliability of Scripture and does archaeology support or contradict the Bible. So here's my goal today. I just want you to see that the Word of God can be defended. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of of the heart. And, And 2 Timothy Timothy chapter 3 says, All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the sermon of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, verses like these two, uh, they're true and they're powerful, but we should recognize that if you're in the conversation with a non believer, and especially with a skeptical non believer, you can't just say, The Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. That, that won't be accepted in an argument with an atheist. That won't get you very far. So we're going to look at the empirical evidence uh, for the, evident, the reliability of Scripture. So we're going to start this morning by looking at the Bible as what it is, which is a, an ancient historical document. Uh, so, so as such, the, the first question we want to address is, is this a reliable document from a historical perspective? So historians uh, primarily would look at two factors in determining the reliability of any historical document. Uh, The first factor is if we don't have the autograph, which is the original, then how many manuscripts or copies of the original do we have? The second question they'll ask is what are the dates of the manuscripts or the copies in relation to the original? So the closer a copy is to the original, the more accurate it is likely to be. Uh, So uh, we've probably all played that, I think it's called the telephone game, where uh, if I whisper something to Pat and Melanie, and they whisper it, and everyone whispers it around the room, by the time it gets to the back, it's something completely different than where it started. Uh, Many skeptics believe this is the case with the Bible, that the Bible started as something, but over thousands of years, it's totally different today, than what it used to be. But the more manuscripts that we have that say the same thing, and the closer they are to the original, the more we can recognize that they can be trusted as accurate and consistent. So I want to look at a few uh, comparable historical documents. Uh, They're they're from give or take the same time period. uh, Just for a point of reference, the closest numerically to, to the Bible is Homer's Iliad. Uh, we have about 1,900 manuscripts or copies of his Iliad, uh, and the closest that we have to the original came 415 years later. Uh, now, that that is actually an anomaly in itself. We don't have anything else uh, other than scripture that's close to that, and I'll show you that. Uh, Livy was a Roman historian. He wrote a book called Roman History in 17 AD. Now, what we have is... 35 surviving manuscripts, 35 surviving copies, and the closest to when Livy actually lived was 400 years after his death. Uh, Then we have Caesar, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. This is where we get most of our information of what we know of Julius Caesar. This was written in 50 B.C., uh, and what's left for us today is 10 copies uh, ten, ten manuscripts, uh, and they, the nearest to Julius Caesar is 900 to 1,000 years after he died. And then one more, uh, the histories of Tacitus. He was another Roman historian. He wrote his works in 100 AD, and what are remaining are four and a half manuscripts. We have four and a half copies uh, of his writings, and the closest of those is 700 years from the time that he actually wrote them and and what's kind of ironic here is no one questions any of them because they're not the bible so no one questions any any of them so what do we have of the new testament alone in the new testament alone we have approximately 25,000 manuscripts 25,000 copies either fragments or books or in some cases the entire Uh, New Testament. And again, this is just the New Testament. The Old Testament, I've seen estimates in the hundreds of thousands. So in the New Testament, we have about 25,000 manuscripts, and the nearest uh, is about 40 years after, uh, after they were written. So do you see that we're not on a level playing field here? uh anyone will take these first four works and they won't question a thing about it. Well, we get to the New Testament, and we have 25,000 copies of it, uh and uh some of them within 40 years of when they were written, and people still say, "Oh, it's just fairy tales. We can't trust any of it." Uh so uh, uh I'll, I'll show you one more slide here. There's another number I want to put underneath uh because that 40 years is just a fragment of scripture. Uh It's about 100 years to a full book that we have. It's 150 years to almost the entire New Testament and 225 years where we have manuscripts of the entire New Testament. All of those, by the way, are nearer than any of the others. Uh, So it's pretty neat. I want to show you here. The earliest fragment that we have of New Testament scripture is called the Ryland's Library uh, Papyrus, P52, uh, and it's most commonly dated to uh, 125 AD. We have a picture of that, Greg, if you'll put it up for me. Uh, this is a picture of the papyrus. It's front and back. Um, and it. Uh, I want to show you this. Uh, it's really neat to me. Uh, so we'll do one side and then we'll do the other. And we'll just show you the, the translation here. So go ahead with that, Greg. This is one side of it. It just says, for the Jews, for us, anyone so that W. Oak. You you can see what it says. But what we can do, I I feel like it's almost like national treasure here. Uh, If anybody gets that reference, that's becoming an old movie. But uh, um, we can actually just take our scripture that we have in front of us today and fill in the blank here. Go ahead with that, Greg. So it says, For us it is not permitted to kill anyone so that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Entered therefore again into the praetorium, Pilate, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Thou art king of the Jews. So we actually, we don't have to twist anything to see that this is still what we have today. Now, if we flip over to the other side of the the papyrus, it says this, uh, this I have been born world that I would test. You can see what it says and we can actually do the exact same thing and we can just fill in the blanks for this. I have been born and for this, I've come into the world so that I would testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth. hears my voice said to him, Pilate, what is truth? And this having said, again, he went out to the Jews and said to them, I find not one fault in him. This is, it's, this is the same thing that you have likely in your phone or in your Bible today. And this is, this is dated as early as 10 to 15 years after John wrote it. But the, the latest more accepted is still 40 years from when he wrote it rather than a thousand years like some of these other things. So, so the proof. Uh, is there Now, the, the natural question is, first, do the manuscripts align? And second, are there differences or are there errors? And the simple answer is, when you have 25,000 people copying by hand, word, uh, word for word, yeah, there are going to be errors. Uh, but these are almost exclusively scribal errors. And what that means is there are spelling errors. Uh, and sometimes the spelling errors are not accidental. Uh, so in the Greek language, uh, for instance, there, there's the 13th letter is the letter new, which looks like the English, English letter V. But if a word ends with that letter in the Greek language, and the next word, uh, I believe, uh, let me, I don't want to mislead you here. Yeah, if the next word starts with a vowel, then the scribe has the option of whether he wants to include that letter or not. It's just a part of the way that their, their alphabet works. It's called the removable nu. Another thing that they can do is I, I, IE, or EI are all interchangeable. Uh, There's no consistency with the scribes. Now, we recognize this, but those who are counting errors say error, 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 variant is what they call it, variant. Uh, Another one would be word order changes. Have you ever noticed that sometimes your Bible says Jesus Christ and other times it says Christ Jesus? Does that change the meaning of who it is? No, it doesn't, but if these manuscripts put a word in a different order, then they count it as an error. And then another one, it's it's, uh, articles that are missing their proper nouns. So in the Greek language, uh, you can put an article in front of a proper noun, so you can say, the Jesus, the Peter, the John, uh, if you choose, or not. There's no consistency, there's no way that you're supposed to do it or have to do it, so we have 25,000 manuscripts, and some some scribes want to do it, others don't. So what we have is errors in the manuscripts, um, but all of these errors make absolutely no difference in the message of Scripture. They're just variants uh, of the manuscripts. Uh, Bart Ehrman, we've talked about a couple of times, he, he's probably the most well-known celebrity atheist today. He does debates against Christianity. He, he was raised in the church. He went to a theological seminary, and then he left the faith and started arguing against it. But he wrote a book uh, called Misquoting Jesus. And one of the things he does in his book uh, is he brings up all of these variants, these errors in the manuscripts. And he says, hey, if you add it up, there are more than 200,000 variants in the New Testament. Uh, and when he writes the book, he makes it sound like, how can you possibly trust something with that many errors in it? Uh, but at the end of the book, there's a Q&A section that he puts in there, and someone says, uh, hey, your mentor says, yeah, those are there, but that changes nothing about the meaning. So Bart Ehrman, uh, he replied, he responded to that, uh, and he said this. Uh, he said, Yes, the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So he writes this book, and he talks about all these errors to build up his case against Christianity, but he doesn't even believe that that's a case against Christianity when it comes down to it. So uh, another thing that Ehrman will uh, admit to is, We have the early church fathers, Ignatius and and, uh, Clement of Alexander, I think is his name. And these early church fathers, they used to write letters, uh, and they would quote a lot of scripture in their letters, and so much so uh, that uh, they say that we can actually take these letters from the early church fathers and reconstruct the entire New Testament without even using the manuscripts. So we can know they were using those early manuscripts to write from, so we know what the early manuscripts look like. And we don't even have to have the manuscripts to know it, but we do, more than 25,000 of them, so we can understand, um, is the Bible inerrant? Is there error in the Bible? Well, the short answer is the original autographs, the original writings are absolutely inerrant. But we can also understand that when 25,000 people are writing down the entire New Testament, there are going to be mistakes made. But we also understand completely that this is trustworthy and it's consistent, our Bible today, with the Bible that they uh, were writing you know, 2,000 years ago. So uh, have people made errors along the way? Yes, they have, spelling errors and things like that, but not in the stories Uh, not in the message of scripture, and most importantly, certainly not in the gospel, uh, which is what brings salvation to us, our faith in the gospel. So when we establish that scripture itself is consistent and reliable, the next area that skeptics attack is the historical accuracy of the Bible. They'll say, okay, you can show me that it's consistent, but that doesn't mean it's true. So what they'll do is they'll look to the field of archaeology and they'll say, Uh, The evidence, uh, there's no evidence for this person or this place anywhere outside of scripture. Therefore, it must be made up. Uh, So there's a doctor named Scott Stripling. He's the leading archaeologist in Israel. And he says he hears this all the time. People will come to him and say, there's no evidence for this. So it must be made up. And uh, he has two responses to that. First, he says, uh, we are constantly constantly making discoveries that validate the historical reliability of the Bible, and we've never made one that disproves it. In fact, one of the hardest things for me preparing this week is kind of limiting which discoveries that I had time to talk about this morning. The second thing that he'll say to them when they say, hey, there, there's no evidence for this uh, in excavations, is between 5 and 6% of Israel has been excavated. 94%... Has it been touched? Is it possible that maybe we can't find that name anywhere because there's 94% that we haven't investigated yet? So with that said, I want to look at, at a, a few discoveries that we have made authenticating the Bible. Uh, so just a few of the many. We'll start with what's called the Pilot Stone. Uh, Doc, Dr. Stripling says that until the year 1961, when this was uh, discovered, I think, yeah, we have a picture there, until the year 1961, when this was discovered, if you went to an Ivy League theological seminary, they taught you in seminary that Pilate was most likely likely a fictional character, that more than likely, Pilate never actually existed for a couple of reasons. We just didn't have evidence for him outside of uh, scripture. Uh, and then secondly, the Bible calls him a prefect, and they said a prefect... Uh, There there were no prefects in Judea for several hundred years after that. There were governors and things like that, but this is obviously made up because there's no evidence for Pontius Pilate, and even if there was, there's no evidence for for a prefect until this was discovered in 1961. It's a dedication stone from Pontius Pilate to Tiberius Caesar. It says this. It says, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, has dedicated uh, and... Uh, that 's where it cuts off, but we have his name showing his identity, and we have that he was indeed a prefect so um, so what what a skeptic will do is they 'll move on to the next thing and uh, Dr. Stripling said one of the hardest things that that they encounter is if they make a discovery that proves scripture, uh, getting it published is sometimes difficult, so i don 't have this on the screen. Um, So don't worry about this part. But in Mark chapter 2 verse 4, for instance, uh, it says that the crowd could not get to Jesus. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging through it, and then lowered the mat uh, uh, the man was lying on. So uh, critics of Scripture will say uh, the Bible, the the word for roof uh, means a ceramic roof. Critics of Scripture will say there were no ceramic roofs in Jerusalem, in Judea, until two to 300 A.D., and what's happened is they've discovered these roofs many times and they've dated these roofs to the days of Jesus, but they can't get them published by, uh, scholarship because they say, oh, you must have the dating wrong because there can't be roofs in Jerusalem in Jesus's time period. We know that. And they have found these roofs, they've dated them and uh, Dr. Stripling says, uh, the question was, have you ever found anything that disproves scripture? And he said, well, it depends on who you ask, because the critic will tell you, yeah. They'll say that uh, there were no roofs. We've discovered them. They just won't publish them because it doesn't match their preconceived uh, notions. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll jump back into the next claim. The same claim made of Pilate, I don't know if you know, uh, was made of King David. They said there was no evidence to support the historical existence of David. So critics argued that David was a mythological figure. And in fact, the battle of David and Goliath is just an element of Greek mythology. And that was the belief by many until 1993. And it, uh, they discovered something called the Tel Dan Steel, uh, which is carved into stone. It's the record of a battle, which is dated to about 100 years after the death of Christ. You can put that picture... Uh, on the screen for me. That is the picture of the stone they discovered in 1993, and this is the translation of what it says. I slew 70 kings who harnessed thousands of chariots and thousands of horses. I killed Jehoram, uh, son of Ahab, king of Israel, and I killed that guy, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. This is the first and one of the only references to the house of David in all of antiquity. But it was proof that the house of David was recognized as far back again. This was about 100 years after David's death. And by the way, what it says here actually coincides with the biblical story in 2 Kings. So when we say, when we can prove that David is real, what are they going to do next? They move to the next guy. So they say, well, we believe that it's impossible that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And two of the primary reasons that we believe uh, is there's not sufficient evidence that there was a written language in the days of Moses or a written Hebrew language in the days of Moses. And secondly, one other factor, sometimes in the first five books of the Bible, they call God El, E-L, and other times they call him Yahweh. This is proof that there are different authors written over thousands of years and they called God whatever they thought God's name should be. Now, um, there are a couple of issues with this. One, it's difficult to be historically accurate if they're correct because they're saying that the Bible wasn't written those first five books until a 1,000 years after it happened. So how can we trust that it's accurate? The second problem is Jesus credits Moses with being the author of the first five books of the Bible. So we've got a problem there if they can be proven right. But what we found... Um, is uh, let's put the scripture on the the screen first. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 29. This is the days of Joshua and the days of Moses. Uh, Specifically, this is the days of Joshua here. Uh, Do we have that, Greg? I don't remember if I gave it. I didn't give it to him. I'll just read it to you. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. So there are two mountains. Gerizim, he says, on this mountain, you proclaim blessings. On this other mountain, you proclaim curses. Uh, And this was not uncommon in that day to to have a place where you proclaim curses. Now, this is not like, I curse you, go die. This is a curse in the way of, uh, they actually prayed this, God, uh, if we obey you, you, would you bless us? And if we ever depart from you, God, curse us. This was actually a commitment type thing. Uh, So, uh, years ago, uh, they first discovered at the base of this mountain, Mount Ebal, what is called Joshua's Altar. So, this is at the the base of the mountain. But just uh, four years ago, in 2019, a very recent discovery, they found what is called a curse tablet. So, on the Mount of Cursing, they, they, they found a curse tablet. Go ahead to the next one just so you can see the size of it. Uh, You can see how hard these discoveries are based on their size. Uh, And this one, it's amazing because um, if we had discovered this 20 years ago, it would have done us no good. Because what they did is they made this curse, they inscribed the curse, and then they sealed it. uh, I believe it was with lead. So you can't actually read the curse. But when they found this, they knew this was something special. They had to send it to Switzerland where they had what's called, I think, a topography uh, machine which scans it so that it can go past the, the lead and it can read the inscription. Uh, so ignore the, the curse part of this and just, just pay attention to the significance here. Go ahead, Greg. This is uh, what the, that tablet says. It says, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh, you will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. Encouraging, right? Uh, <laughs> but the significance of this is two things. Uh, First of all, we have proof of, uh, it's called Proto-Hebraic writing from the days of Moses. They did write, it's a mixture of uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics and the Hebrew language. It's it's, it's an incredible thing. We have proof that there was writing. Secondly, God Yahweh is El Yahweh. So we have evidence that uh, whoever wrote this called God both El and Yahweh, which disproves your theory that because sometimes it's L and sometimes it's Yahweh, it couldn't have been Moses. That's been thrown right out the window. Uh, and all of this uh, happened again just about four years ago. So it's, it's some amazing things. Uh, so um, let's see. Uh, other things uh, j- just to, to let you know. Uh, in the book of Acts, 100% of the locations, every location has been discovered. When we look to the New Test, or the Old Testament, more than 90% of the locations uh, have been discovered. Time and time again, archaeology is proving scripture to, to be true. Now, what's going to happen next? Critics are going to move on to the next thing and say, well, what about this? What about this? And eventually, uh, that will be proven true uh, as well. And the last one. I don't think I have a picture of it. Actually, I do, Uh, is the the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I mentioned that were discovered in 1948 uh, by some some kids throwing rocks into caves in in Qumran. If you don't know the story, they're just throwing rocks into the caves like kids would do, and they hear something shatter, so they go check it out, uh, and what they find, uh, in 1948, is some of the oldest manuscripts that we have of any of Scripture. And in fact, some of the manuscripts are more than a thousand years older than anything that we had prior to that. So I talked about the significance of this a few weeks ago. We have all of these prophecies in Scripture that detail Jesus perfectly to a T. And, and the critics would argue that this must have been written after Jesus lived because it's it's so accurate. But Because we we made this discovery and we can date it before Jesus, we can actually show them the book of Isaiah, for instance. We have a copy of it from over 100 years before Christ. And we can say, uh, no, we have proof that these prophecies are real and they're true uh, and they're accurate. And we also find in those, you can come rename. We also find in these scrolls that more than 95% of what those scrolls say from thousands of years ago match your Bible perfectly and the other 5% is almost exclusively, again, scribal errors and misspelled words. Uh, so the message remains intact. And then the one final piece of evidence that I want to share with you for the, the reliability of the Word of God uh, is simply the story of Scripture. We, we have a book that was written over the span of 1,500 years by 40, 40 authors who didn't know each other. Different locations, three different continents, different cultures, three different languages. Yet in all of this, there's one main character. Even the ones that didn't know that they were writing about this one main character are writing about the one main character, and that is God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. From the book of Genesis, it's talking about him. Noah is a a type of him. Moses is a type of him. uh, Joseph, you you can go through the list. They're all pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. It's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, uh, after he had risen from the grave and he meets with the men on the road, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he said, you might not have known it, but it's always been pointing to me. Now, that's incredible in and of itself, but it's also evidence that we have for the reliability of the book that that we study here. Can you stand with me? (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what a response to that message looks looks like. Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, enlighten our hearts just to recognize uh, what we have in your word, that it can be trusted, that you can be trusted as true, that we have all of the evidence, Lord. I thank you that again and again you prove the doubters wrong. And we pray that you. as Renee leads us, I just want to encourage you to invite the Spirit to speak to your heart. Uh, Perhaps there have been doubts in your heart, and, and your prayer this morning is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Whatever it may be, take a few moments. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.